My guest today on Mission Impact is Sabrina Walker-Hernandez. Sabrina is the president and CEO of Supporting World Hope. She has over 25 years of experience in nonprofit management, fundraising, and leadership. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers. And all of this for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Sabrina and I talk about some fundraising fundamentals. We talk about what makes fundraising so scary, especially the ask, and why the ask is actually only 5% of the process. The first part of the cycle is identifying and quantifying potential, qualifying potential donors. And hopefully there'll be some quantity good to go with it. And then the most important part is the cultivation or building of relationships. And then ultimately it comes to the ask and once that is done and, and successful, thanking the donor the way that they want to be thanked. But a lot of the work is the fun work of getting to know people and getting to know whether they would be excited about your mission. We talk about why both extroverts and introverts can make great fundraisers, as well as why it's so important to remember that you are not asking for the money yourself, for yourself, it is for the mission you're working towards and the people your organization works with. Well, welcome, Sabrina. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited about our conversation. So to get us started, um, what drew you to the work you do? What, what motivates you and what would you describe as your why? Well, you know, I, as I thought about that question, it really amazes me that it goes back to childhood. My mom was a missionary in the church and we grew up really doing service projects in the community through the church. And now, you know, in retrospect, I realized that it really had an impact on my life. When I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. And so I went to college, did pre-law, but then I did an internship with a nonprofit and I realized that being an attorney did not give me any joy. I did an internship with this nonprofit called Avacy Resource Center for Housing. And I had to mediate between landlords and tenants who were being evicted. And I got to work with a lot of attorneys. And the way attorneys work is there is no right way or wrong way. There is only the law. And I discovered that in that process, and I realized I didn't want to be an attorney, but really what spoke to my heart, what reminded me of my childhood, what reminded me of what my mom taught me was working the nonprofit side. So since that day, I have been hooked on this journey. And we're certainly grateful for all the work that lawyers do, especially in policy and helping laws get revised, etc. But I love your point about it didn't bring me joy. You know, I think it was like, okay, how do you joy. Marie Kondo your, your career? <laughs> and, and the fact <laughs> right? that you did it from the very beginning, from your very first job, 
and and an internship that really was a pivotal moment for you. I love that. Um, yes. Saved me a lot of time and a lot of money, let me just say. Right. I mean, to have done it before you're going to law school, that, yeah, too many people wake up 10 years later and go, wait a second, what am I doing? Exactly. So I, I'm, very, I'm very appreciative of the process. Yes. Yes, definitely. So you focus on helping nonprofits be more successful in their fundraising efforts. And a, and a lot of folks, when they're new to the sector, whether they're staff or a staff leader or board member, and probably myself too, I'm not a fundraising person, are afraid of fundraising. They don't want to ask people for money. You know, it feels awkward. What helps make it feel less scary for folks? Well, I think helping it make feel, helping people understand that the fundraising process is more than making the ask. The ask is only about 5% of the fundraising process. And so I tell people, don't let that 5%, you know, deter you from, from the whole thing. Um, so 20% of fundraising is really identifying and qualifying who the donors are. Does my mission resonate with them? Are they passionate about kids? If I happen to service kids, are they passionate about animals or the homeless or whatever it is your nonprofit does? And then saying, okay, if they're passionate about my cause, now do they have the ability to uh, financially support my cause? And then once you identify that, that that's like 20% of the fundraising process. So now you have your list of the names of people who, you know, have an affinity towards your mission and have the ability to give towards your mission. The next 60%, and that's the most, the, the highest percentage of the pie, 60% is cultivation. And cultivation is building relationships. And personally, I like people and I like building relationships. So building relationships Relationships mean, you know, taking them out to lunch. It means picking up the phone and checking on them. It means inviting them to an event, you know, and make sure that you connect with them at that event. It's inviting them in to volunteer for a specific program or having them come in on a tour of your nonprofit. That's the part that I really like. And so I really appreciate that it's 60% of the fundraising process because if you are a social butterfly, you really like that part. Even if you're not a social butterfly, my introverts also excel at that part because they actually listen. <laughs> they can build those relationships and they remember those details. And then 5% is the ask and that's all it is and then most of the time especially with board members I always say a lot of board members are not going to feel comfortable with the ask that even that five percent so I always say board members come along with me on the the visit for the ask but what I want you to do is be there to lend credibility because you are a volunteer and they know that you are volunteering your time whereas I'm a staff person I get paid to do this job. I get paid, um, uh, you know, to perform this mission. So I will make the ask, even if it still makes me nervous, even if that 5% still makes me nervous and it does 20 something years later, um, I will do that part. Um, and uttering that phrase, will you consider a gift of $10,000 to our ABC nonprofit? Once you say that, you be silent, right? And I always say the first person who speaks 
loses. Um, so just be silent. Um, and then beyond that, 15% is thanking thanking the donor, making sure they understand the impact that their money um, provided, making sure they understand what, how that program affected an individual um, in, your, in your clientele roster. Um, so that's the whole fundraising process. And I think people still get a little caught up on that 5%. Like I said, I still get nervous, but one of the mantras that I would tell myself before I um, went into any fundraising ask, it was always, this is not for me. This is not for Sabrina. This is for the kids that I serve because I worked in a uh, youth serving organization. This is for the kids that I serve. They deserve to have the best. They deserve to have uh, opportunities. They deserve to have hope. And you're going in here on their behalf because they cannot speak for themselves. So I remove myself from the conversation because all of that nervousness and fear is really about self and you're not there for yourself. You're there for your client and for those that you're the reason why you are in this um, mission, the reason why if you're a founder, why you started this. So that's kind of one of the mantras that I tell myself as I go into the room. That's a great that's a great reminder because, it you know, all yeah, all that nervousness and how will you know, how will it come across and what will they you know, is all caught up in what will they think of me and. And so, yeah, so removing yourself out of the equation, reminding yourself, you know, going back to the, the original question of why do you do this work? Why, you know, what motivates you? Why, why are you, why did you pick to, choose to work in this particular organization? All of those things exactly. to kind of reconnect you with, um, with, uh, with the mission that is what the person's contributing to anyway. Right, they're not yes. giving and you that's a what check. They're there right, for, that's, uh, the, right. The, they're not giving me a check. They may be handing <laughs> it to you. It may be in the, in the in the before times, but um, right. you know, they're they're really about uh, supporting that organization and the work it's doing. So you talked about kind of different percentages, and the first one being identifying and and qualifying uh, possible donors for someone who's kind of getting started in this. Maybe they've had some. You know, most organizations will be doing something around fundraising, but maybe they haven't really been strategic about it or um, been really super intentional. Where would you, well, where would you say you should start in terms of kind of thinking about who might be those folks that ultimately would end up on that list to start being qualified as donors? So one of the exercises that I like to do is I like to do this thing called um, a list generator. You know, they have the sphere of influence and the sphere of influence is where you draw a little circle and it's you and then you put spokes off and you identify like people that you know. That one for me doesn't give me enough details. I happen to serve on a board of directors and it's really funny um, because of my experience in nonprofit. And that's one of the things that they did was like, okay, so we need to, we, we have this event coming up and um, we need to get some sponsors. So can you write down different people? And my mind went totally blank. And I thought this is how board members feel. Mm. Got it. Got it. So it's always nice to have a tool called a list generator. And this list generator um, is a tool that I use and it's front and it's back. And basically um, it says name two people that you know that you are in a service club with. 
Name two people that you know that you attend church with. Name two people that you know um, that are in law enforcement. Name two people that you know that are elected officials. And the list goes on and on and on. And so by the time you finish with that list, you have about 25 names, right? And so then from that 25 names, you can narrow it down and say, okay, of these people, who has an affinity towards this mission? Who do I think um, would this our mission resonate with? Um, so that's one of the ways that you can do it. And then another way that I like to do it, um, once you have those names, you know, I still read the newspaper and I still look at magazines and things like that. And a lot of times um, nonprofits will do the thank you, you know, um, post an event. And I still scour those. <laughs> And I still look at them and see, okay, who sponsored um, this event? Who, you know, who, who's involved in this? Because that also helps me generate names. And not only generate names, it helps with the affinity part. Because now, not only do I have their name, and it might be a name that's on my list, but I also know that they have the ability to give and they, and they have given in the past. So I use those two methods and I encourage boards um, to use those methods because even if you only have three board members, but if it's three board members and you each walk away with 25 names, that's 75 people that you have to vet and go through. And so that's a good pool of people. And if you're lucky to have a CRM system, then I say go to your CRM system and see, you know, who your last donors were, who was your most loyal donors, who's giving, you know, the longest and start from that process. So CRM being customer relations management database kind of yes. thing. Um, so one thing that I loved about how you described that process is how you made it so concrete instead of just a blank sheet of paper and think of people, you, you gave all sorts of different categories. And even if someone didn't have two people to put in one specific category, that would probably get them to think, you know, let's say I don't know anyone in law enforcement, but I think who else works with law enforcement? You know, oh, but I know, you know, this person who is the head of the hospital or whatever it might be in the community. Right. It really, by being right. concrete, you help people spark the ideas and, and you know, shift out of that. Ah, it's a blank piece of paper. What am I supposed to do exactly. with it? Exactly. <laughs> What am I supposed to do with it? And then, you know, it's funny because that's that was my first thought as a board member. I couldn't believe it. And then you also have those that think, well, I don't, you know, you tell them to give names and you, you talk about fundraising or sponsorships. And the one of the first thoughts is also, well, I don't know anybody that's rich or I don't know. I don't know anyone or, you know, but when you give them that thought piece of paper with some ideas on it, it starts to generate another conversation. And you start to put people on there that you hadn't even thought of. So it's good to give board members and staff members, don't leave out staff members if you have staff members, um, you can go through that process with them as well. And you said the next, the next really, and the biggest chunk of the whole process is the cultivation process. And, um, you know, when people hear relationship building and they hear cultivation, but they think, oh, but it's all about fundraising, they may still feel a little anxious about, well, is this really just transactional? And am I just trying to get something out of someone? You know, so how do you help people um, really be authentic in how they're building relationships with folks? It's funny that you asked that question because I had someone ask that question as well. And I told them, look, you're a nonprofit. They already know you're coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's, in the, it's, 
you, there is no way around it. Just accept it. They they know that you're a nonprofit, and that's not a bad thing. You know, I said people should have one or two reactions when they see you. Um, if you're working with a nonprofit, they should like, oh my God, here she's come. She's gonna ask me for something, <laughs> or oh my God, here she come. Let me think about what I can give her. Those should be the reactions because they should they sh- and it's, it's not a bad thing. Um, again, because you're not asking for yourself. They are truly identifying you with the mission of the organization. And not like, oh my God, here she comes. What is she going to ask me for for herself? It's like, what is she going to ask me for for her organization? Um, and so it really is, um, as a nonprofit, they, they genuinely know that you are in the fundraising business. They know that you are developing a relationship with them in order to, um, not it's, it's, it's a genuine relationship, but it's also in order to support the work that you do. Um, and I've had some very great relationships that have developed um, through that process. You know, in 2018, I got diagnosed with cancer and um, I have been working with my organization for uh, about 20 years. And all of my donors came together um, these people that I have built relationships over time, and they all pulled together, and uh, they sent me a twenty thousand wow. dollar check, and I did not ask for that, and that was for Sabrina um, to help with her medical bills, um, and that was um, because of their relationships that I have built with them. But when I go out and I take donors, potential donors, out and get to know them, it's not necessarily always talking about the organization. It really is learning about their family is learning about um, what, what they're passionate about is learning about their career um, finding out what college they they went to trying to find some of those common grounds you know um, I, I I just enjoy learning about people and I think that um, if you go to the table with that in mind I want to learn about you as a person then that will also come across I it's not I want to learn about you as a person just so you can support my nonprofit most of the time what I do is and I guess maybe this is some tricks not tricks but this is this is some things that I've done that have helped bridge that so if I invite you out for lunch I'm gonna pay I don't care if you're worth millions of dollars I, I that doesn't matter to me I am going to pay because I extended the invitation to you um, the other one is um, if I I, if I am listening and I realize, oh, this person collects horses or this person collects shoes or whatever it is, if I'm out of town or if I see something that I think you might like, I will buy that for you and I will make sure that you get it, right? Um, so it's those little things like that. Um, and also another thing that I do is I always go to the table to see how I can be of service first. That is a that is a true key to it. How can I be a service to this person first? Um, and a lots of times that really kind of smooths the the process. Because when I'm in a mixer or I go to lunch with somebody, I'm I'm constantly listening to what it is that they're doing and what they're passionate about, and I see how I can be a service to them. And I love that point about listening and really keying into you know what's important to them. Looking thinking about it from their point of view, you know, what are, what are other interests that they have that, that you can, and, and then to remember those, right. And, and to, you know, take the time, be thoughtful enough to 
as you said, buy something if it, if it if you're mm-hmm. if you see something or send them something related to that so that they know that you you know that you care and you took the time mm-hmm. to to pay attention to them as an as a unique individual. Yes. Yes. And even if they don't give, you know, you can spend a lot of time in cultivation and ultimately it might not be an alignment for them. That's okay. You do not sever the relationship. You continue with the relationship because your relationship is with that person, not with their ATM card. <laughs> so that's very important to remember. <laughs> right, for sure. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that's interesting from your background is that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, you know, fundraising is easy in New York or Silicon Valley where there's these massive cons or DC, I, I'm in the DC area where these just these massive concentrations of wealth. Um, but you spearheaded a, a really large comprehensive capital campaign um, in one of the poorest counties in the US. So I'm curious yes. how you were, were able to be successful in that situation. Well, you know, I, I, I God, <laughs> that's what I say, but no, it was, it really was having the right people on the, on the bus and having the right team behind you. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting um, with that uh, $12 million capital campaign. Um, I had a board of about 17 uh, board members, um, but my capital campaign were, was really five people um, and four of them were not board members. Um, I had one board member that was on that capital campaign committee, um, but um, the other four people um, were really just, you know, the good team was identifying those in the community that was already very, very philanthropic, right? So having those people um, and cultivating those people, it took about a couple years to cultivate those people um, and, and and um, make them aware of who we were and make them aware of our services. And so we started out, you know, inviting them in on a tour, um, going in and with a board member and, and making introductions and talking to them, joining some of the same social clubs that they joined. You know, um, a lot of them, two of them, half of them were Rotarians. So joining the Rotary Club and getting really active um, there so that they could see the work ethic so they can learn who you are as well. Um, so it took about two years to cultivate that team of people that I really wanted to have as the capital campaign committee. Um, and so that that was uh, really how we how it was done. It was thinking very strategically and saying, okay, who do I want um, as my capital campaign team? And I had to look and see who, when you think of, um, especially in a small community, when you think of philanthropy in that community, what name keeps rising up over and over and over again? Now, having said that, you know that everybody is after those same people, right? <laughs> So now how do you set yourself apart from everybody else? And and that was one of the strategies, you know, cultivate them, invite them in, but also be in the same circle that they're in. Again, you know, if they're heavily involved in Rotary, you get involved in Rotary. If they're heavily involved in Chamber, you get involved in the Chamber. It's almost like social stalking, um, <laughs> but it is so that they get to know you on a whole nother level. So. Right, because they, you know, they're looking for your competence. Do they have, you know, confidence in you that, you know, you can talk about a wonderful mission and it sounds great, but do they, do they trust that you'll be able to, you know, make that vision happen? 
Um, you know, yes. I do a lot of strategic planning, and of course, organizations are oftentimes through a process like that, kind of coming up with a big vision that then they're like, "Oops, how are we gonna how are we gonna fund this?" So, what what do you say in terms of kind of getting started in terms, you know, just in terms of building a a, a fundraising strategy? You talked about the different phases, but I'm wondering about you know what are some of the first steps for coming up with a good plan. So I think one of the first steps of coming up with a good plan is it's always amazing to me how many nonprofits, especially the newer nonprofits, are just kind of winging it as far as the budget is concerned. Um, And so I'm like, look, guys, it's a guesstimation, especially in your first year, right? It is how much revenue do you anticipate bringing in and break that down as in okay so i'm going to do a peer-to-peer campaign and it's going to bring in this much i'm going to do an event and it's going to bring in this much i'm going to budget this much for grants okay and then have your expenses the expenses are generally a little bit more concrete than that than your revenues right so you know what your expenses are and then you're going to work your butt off to hit those revenues. And if you don't hit those revenues, then you have to adjust your expenses. Something has to go. So have an operating budget in place would be one of the first strategies that I say that you need to have. Um, And then beyond that, I think that um, nonprofits need to be innovative um, in their, in uh, pursuing different revenues. Um, And when I say innovative, um, you know, I hate that nonprofits get on that special event wheel. I want them to get off that wheel so bad of jumping from one event to the next event to the next event, because that's really not getting you anywhere, especially by the time you factor in um, hours, you know, board hours, staff hours, all of these things. Um, So I always tell them to have maybe two signature events, figure out what your signature events are. And um, the first year, of course, you're not going to raise a huge amount. um, But as you as you move forward, you will improve the event and you will continue Um, around the innovation specifically, though. I think that um, people need to look at social enterprise. They need to look at, depending on what state you're in, of course, I'm in the great state of Texas and we're a little bit more loosey-goosey down here. Y'all seen our rules. They ain't that, they're not that tight. Um, so we can do a lot more things than others. Um, you know, look at bingo revenue. Um, look at, like I said, a social enterprise. Look at how you can um, do some type of business partnership as, as far as like sharing the credit. Um, and that's when uh, businesses can um, designate a part of their credit card processing fees to a nonprofit. So look and be innovative. Explore some of those innovative things that you can do that will help you towards your revenue. Um, so don't get kind of stuck in the traditional and the mundane because that traditional, most of the time, people will go to the special event and special events can be very straining on time and on budget. Yeah, and and off too often I think organizations if they really factor in all the work that goes into producing that event, um, they may have had a nice number on their gross revenue raised, but the net doesn't look as pretty. So it does not look as pretty, especially by the time you factor in all those yeah. hours. Um, so. I would just, you know, two, two, no more than two signature events. If I can get anything out there, no more than two signature events. That's it. So in the last year, obviously, uh, you know, 
a lot of fundraisers have um, really relied on those face-to-face events and, of course, couldn't couldn't do those. What kind of innovations have you seen over the past year as people have had to pivot? Well, I've seen, a, I, I attended a lot of virtual events, of course. I attended them just kind of, I guess I'm a stalker. <laughs> You know, I stalked a lot of virtual events um, and I saw people do some really creative things. Um, You know, I think virtual, some type of hybrid events are kind of here to stay. I hope they're here to stay because they're less, you know, the cost is less to put on a virtual event. And you can still even engage um, if celebrity, if that's who you want to engage, you can engage them at a much lower cost because it is virtual and there's no flight involved. There's no hotel involved. You know, it might be a discounted speaking fee um, because it is virtual. I saw um, one uh local nonprofit um, that raised money for scholarships, they um, actually bought in a comedian from Saturday Night Live via Zoom. Yes, and I thought that that was great Um, because, you know, it's kind of right there in your living room. You get to laugh, you get to, and and not only that, they also partnered with the local restaurant so that everybody received the delivery of um, some wine. Let's just say wine and a meal. So everybody was enjoying their wine and meal at home while they got to listen to this comedian. Um, And I thought that that was good. I liked the concerts as well. Um, So things like that. Um, I think that hybrid is, like I said, I think that some form of hybrid is here to stay as long as the donors will support it. I tend to appreciate not having to get up off my couch and go somewhere. That's just me though. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. But I will say at the same time, You know, just this past week, I went to two different events because even though I enjoy uh, the virtual world, there is something about getting out. You know, people are ready to get out. Um, But I think that the pendulum has swung and it will come back to where you can do some hybrid things that people are very used to it now. Yeah, even before I, I'm thinking of a. This wasn't a fundraising event, but it was a, a conference that where, where I was on staff of the organization, and they, you know, it was a big conference, and and they had a fair a good budget for uh, really premier speakers, and you know, one year the the person that they had lined up, something happened with either with their travel or something with their family, they weren't able to show up. They got them on on the equivalent of Zoom at that time, that was, you know, several years ago, had them up on the big screen. And honestly, from because it was such a big event for most people, they were looking at the Jumbotron anyway, even if the person was yep. in the front of the room, if they had been in front of the room. So, right? you know, the actual- <laughs> They probably had a better They probably seat. had a better, better view, better, you know, and, and yeah. it had a different feel. It was very interesting mm-hmm. um, to see. So yeah, it gives you, it gives you access. So even if, all of your local people you want to have come and gather and be able to socialize face to face if you think about that you can you could you know potentially pull in someone with a little higher profile that you wouldn't be able to afford if they had to also travel and they wouldn't exactly. say yes and yes and they wouldn't say yes and then on top of that you will also put in, pull in some additional donors you know like i said i i attended a lot of virtual events and none of them was necessarily in my backyard you know they were on the east coast or west coast or somewhere in between um and i would not have had that opportunity to do that had it not been virtual so i, I think it's a good thing um i i hope it's here to stay 
um, like I said, I hope it's here to stay only because of the, um, you know, the cost factor for nonprofits and saving on that, uh, the staff hours and, and all those things that kind of go into those events, um, I, th I think would be a good thing for nonprofits. And I think, you know, I had a donor that used to tell me, don't buy me that plaque, D just put the money towards the mission. I hope that it, at some point we will you know, donors will say, you know what, you don't need to hold that in-person event. Let's do this hybrid to save some money for the mission. You know, it might become a standard um, like that. So we'll just have to wait and see, you know, the world is constantly changing. So we just go with, with go with the flow. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, having produced a lot of virtual events, not necessarily fundraising events, I wouldn't want organizations to, to think, I think from an hours point of view, it's pretty equal. Um, in terms of the planning and all of that that has to go into it, but the direct cost is substantially right. different because you're so right. You may cater from a restaurant, have people deliver some food, but you know you're not paying for hotel space and a ballroom and a you know all of that. Yes. Um, so yeah, all yeah. So that that direct 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 cost is is a lot less. Yeah, the centerpiece is the linen, the napkin, and then the you don't plates, have to worry about any of that, that either. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't have to worry about it. And then the cleanup afterwards, God forbid, you know, you don't have to deal with any of that. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So at the end of each episode, I play a game where I ask uh, folks uh, uh, one icebreaker question. So I've got one for you here. If you could be famous, what would you want to be famous for? Oh, if I could be famous, what would I want to be famous? You know, if I could be famous, I would want to be famous for curing um, cancer. All right. Because I've had that journey, um, and I know a lot of people who are having that journey, and it's not something I wish on my worst enemy. So it would, it just seems like, um, it seems like more and more people are, are having that experience. And I think that that would, uh, that would really truly impact the world in a positive way. It sure would. No doubt. No doubt about. So what are you excited about? What's coming up for you in your work? What's emerging? Well, what's coming up for me in my work is, you know, I am in October holding a summit and I will be launching that pretty soon. But what I really want people uh, to, to, to leave with people is to join my um, Facebook group. It's called Nonprofit Professionals Exchange. And I go live in there every Thursday and I do like a 30 minutes to an hour coaching, free coaching based on the questions that they post in the group. So um, again, and I share um, in that group, I share a lot of uh, free content and I every day at two o'clock in my group, a free tool pops up every day no doubt about it there is a free tool out there i remember being a ceo of an organization and not having time to research because you know you're wearing so many hats so that's one of the reasons why i started this group is to put all those i'm going to do the research for you here you go come to one central location find that that information so you don't have to go down i call it the google rabbit hole you don't have to go down the google rabbit hole so all right that's awesome and we'll yeah we'll we'll, we'll put a link in the 
the show notes to that group so people can find it. And that's, you know, and as you talked about, I mean, you talked about from the beginning, um, what got you into this work was a, a, you know, kind of an ethic of service and approaching fundraising from that point of view. And then sounds like how you're approaching this work as well. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks a lot. It's been great talking to you. I appreciated how Sabrina reflected on her experience as a board member and how that experience made her a better fundraising consultant. When she was asked as a board member to think of 20 people to reach out to, she went blank. So now instead, when she's working with a board, she has very specific prompts that help spark people's thinking. I also appreciated her point that when you're with a nonprofit and you're getting in touch with people in the community, they know. They know you have to fundraise. And if you're working on connecting with them and building a relationship, that part of it will be how you might be able to support the work of the organization. They know you're coming. So with that in mind, it's easier to put that concern aside. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Sabrina, as well as any other links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Nora Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Custer of 100 Ninjas for her production support. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a colleague or a friend. We appreciate you helping us get the word out. Until next time.